Well, it all happened in the blink of an eye. Uh, one moment, uh, Chuck heard a loud yell, and, and the next moment, uh, somebody was rushing at him and pinned him against, <clears throat> against the wall. He smelled alcohol on the man's breath, and that wasn't a good sign. So things were about to get heated, or at least that's what Chuck thought. But it was really over in an instant. The man swung his fist, and it landed squarely on Chuck's face, and his, and his head crashed against the brick wall behind him. And then, and then everything, everything went, went black. Chuck woke up several weeks later. Uh, his, his family didn't think that he would survive what happened. And, and I imagine as he opened up his eyes, he was starting to process the, the events that led him there. Uh, Chuck was uh, a landlord. He owned, a, he owned some, uh, a complex, uh, uh, and, and he was probably called by one of his tenants to check on an unregistered car that was blocking one of the parking spaces. So Chuck went out to check on it, and sure enough, that was the case. And Chuck made a call to the tow driver, and the tow driver was on his way, and so was the owner of that car. And that's when the punch happened. That's when the hit happened. Broke his nose, knocked some teeth out. Uh, he almost choked to death on his own blood. But that wasn't the worst of it. Doctors uh, diagnosed him with a traumatic brain injury. And Chuck, uh, being a doctor himself, realized what that meant. He was going to lose his job. He could no longer do the same work that he, he was doing. He would end up losing his home, his social status. Chuck lost everything. His wife, Auburn, who was a, a free-spirited young woman, was now tasked with being a 24-hour-a-day care worker. Everything was gone. All was lost. Well, in the past few weeks, we have been, we have been talking about some of the one another statements in the Bible. And uh, we've been talking about some of the worthwhile risks of relationships, uh, about moving from places of, of apathy to, uh, to a place of empathy. We've talked about moving from insecurity to hospitality, all good things. But perhaps one of the most difficult things that uh, we will be talking about in this series is what we're going to talk about today. How can we move uh, on, or how can we move our relationships on from hostility, abandonment, and betrayal? I don't know about you, but that's a tough one for me. I remember in high school when, when my best friend ghosted me. Uh, that's, that's a term that, that younger people use, for those of you not familiar. When people stop returning calls, they don't text you back, they vanish like a ghost. And maybe you've been abandoned at some time. Or, or maybe, maybe your employer made a promise uh, about a promotion that they essentially deceived you about. Or perhaps it was worse than that. Maybe it was an affair, or maybe it was abuse from somebody that you, from somebody that you loved. 
You know, as I was thinking about this subject the past couple days, something struck me about why it's so hard to move on and move the relationships forward when we experience these kinds of tragedies or trauma, abuse, hostility, all of those things. And and I think one of the most challenging things to overcome about these subjects is that when they come, they they come unexpectedly. And when we invest years into, into something important in our lives, like a a relationship or a career or a friendship, and they they suddenly break or we lose a relationship without, without notice, especially without any control, we lose personal agency. We lose personal agency. We don't have a say in things like that, as much as we might want to have a say in something like that. And when somebody doesn't, and when somebody does something that can change the course of our lives, that can be degrading. And it can be, it can be humiliating. It can produce in us some of the most bitter shame uh, when we face hostility, abandonment, and betrayal. And that kind of, that kind of shame, it could stick with us forever. Well, what we're going to talk about today is it's important because we know that healthy relationships are important if we're going to be a whole person. We've talked about how how if we don't have healthy relationships, we die. We've also talked about how how healthy relationships can create a, a greater capacity in our lives to experience more and more joy and more and more life because of those relationships. But what happens when, when unexpected challenges uh, come from the outside, unlike insecurity or apathy that's within us? What happens when those challenges come from the outside of us and, and, and we lose control? Uh, when others attack us or harm us, when people damage, damage us in ways that affect our lives, even affect our souls? How can we continue to be life-giving and relationally healthy when inevitable wrongs rob us, rob us, as, rob us from something as important as our dignity? Our dignity. Well, that's the light question I want to ask with you today and explore with you today. And to do that, we're going to, we're going to travel across the ocean to uh, what is now known as modern-day Turkey. And we're going to unearth some ancient wisdom from a letter that was written to some of the very first Christians. Uh, as they were finding out how to practice and, and taking their very first steps and practicing the way and the life of Jesus. Now, the leader, Paul, who was one of the leaders of the early church and a missionary, he, he, did, he never stepped foot in Colossae. But during a busy season, and perhaps it was because of an imprisonment, he sent one of his co-workers named Epaphras to, to go and share the message of Jesus in this town. And they received the message with joy. They took it to heart. They, they took on God's grace, and their lives were changed. And you can, you can hear it in Paul's letter how proud he is of Epaphras, how, how proud he is of them and excited he is for them. But, but rumor had it that, that there were some people that infiltrated the town, some strangers, that started to raise questions about what Epaphras had told them and started to add things onto what Epaphras had said. 
you know, what if Hafford said, yeah, that's great, that's great. But he didn't tell you about the festivals, the new moons, did he? You're saying that you didn't hear about the food laws, uh, what we're supposed to eat and what we're not supposed to eat and how, how those things can draw us closer to God? Uh, you meet regularly, but you're, you're meeting on mostly on, on Sundays. Don't you know that, that Jewish people for millennia have been meeting on Saturdays, the Sabbath? Oh, and you haven't heard about those, the powerful things that angels can do for you, have you? Huh. Well, a community that is new to for a community that's new to faith, questions like those could be unsettling. You mean Epaphras never told us these things that could help us grow in our relationship with God? Didn't he think that we were wise enough? What's that all about? Well, Paul, when he's writing his letter to the Colossians, he doesn't pull any punches. And, and summing a lot up in just a few statements, he says three things. The way forward. The way forward to to becoming better people and deepening our relationship with God is actually to go back to Jesus and not to add on these ancillary things to your faith. The second thing that he says is he calls these things shadows. Shadows that are ineffective for restraining the bad things in our life and ineffective for producing the good in our lives that we want to see produced. Thirdly, thirdly, he reminds them of the beautiful life that Jesus has called them to and enabled them for. And he gives a really beautiful metaphor for that life. He, he calls this life the life of a new person. You have become and you have been made through Jesus a new person. And that means the things that you did as an old person, you throw those aside. And that also means that since you're a new person, you got to get yourself some new clothes. New clothes. Take a look at what he says here in Colossians. Put on then... As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against each other, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. There's a lot to appreciate about this list, isn't there? If you encountered a person like this, who who perfectly embodied all of these virtues, it would be hard to walk away from them and not feel a little bit different, wouldn't it? Well, Paul starts out with compassion. Here in the English Standard Version, it says a a compassionate heart. You can also translate that as a heart for compassion. And that makes good sense to me because he's really starting out this virtue list in a really powerful way by saying, I don't want you to just act compassionately. I want you to love compassion. I want you to love it. And that sets the pace for the virtues that follow. 
compassion, kindness, or goodness, humility, meekness. Now, meekness and humility kind of sound the same, so how do you distinguish the two? Meekness maybe emphasizes a little bit more of uh, putting one's own interests aside in order to prop up someone else's interests. Then lastly, he he closes with compassion and and love and love and and he calls love a perfect tie either it's a it's the glue that binds all of these virtues together or it's the glue that that binds God's community together however paul he wants to focus in and explain one of the virtues in particular and that is patience that is patience. Now, <laughs> he does that. He does that. You could see that he does that because, and this is why I chose the English Standard Version here, is because of these two ing words that follow, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Chances are this is telling us a little bit more by what Paul means when he talks about compassion. And we'll spend some time talking about those in a little bit. But before we go there, I just want to zero in on compassion. Compassion. Because if, if, if we're being honest, uh, not compassion, but uh, patience. Because if we are being honest, patience is, is probably one of the virtues that we hate the most. Right? Uh, have you ever heard the expression that don't, don't pray for patience because God just might give it to you. Don't pray for patience because God just might give it to you. That means, look, if you pray for patience, there is a possibility that God is going to put you in circumstances where your patience will be tested and tried. I actually looked this up on Google because I wasn't too sure of the expression. And it turns out when you type in, don't pray for, the first word that pops up is patience. (laughs) Not money, not this, not that, but don't pray patience. And it makes sense, doesn't it? We don't like to wait. We don't like to wait in line. We don't like to wait in traffic. We don't like to wait for the sermon to get over. Right? We don't like to wait. But as I was thinking about this, I just started to wonder about this term compassion. And a couple things really stood out to me. Is, is it really patience that I hated when I, when I sit in traffic bumper to bumper next to somebody? Or is it the impatience that I feel that I hate so much? And would, in fact, patience, would that liberate me from that feeling of impatience and give me a sense of freedom that I don't normally experience in those situations? But also, in the context that we normally think of patience, I was wondering if we were actually talking about the same thing that Paul was talking about here. As helpful as ever adapting language can be, it's sometimes sad that uh, words disappear and that they they go extinct. Uh, When is the last time that you ever used the word kerfuffle? Too bad, isn't it? What a great word. 
Well, there just happens to be a word that, that we don't use very much anymore that, that might really bring some life to what Paul is actually talking about here with, with patience. And that is long-suffering. Long-suffering. There's a real good chance that long-suffering is exactly what Paul has in mind because of what follows when he talks about bearing with one another and forgiving one another. Now, bearing with one another, that means to, to put up with somebody. It's, it's when, a, well, it's when a, a husband puts up with a wife or taking all of the closet space or turning up the temperature just a couple more degrees always, right? Or it's when a, it's, it's when a wife puts up with her, with her husband for snoring all the time or always letting, letting the dishes soak in the kitchen sink. Putting up with one another. But, but it's, it's really more than that, isn't it? Uh, could, could putting up with one another be... Could it be putting up with a parent's passive-aggressive expressions of disappointment towards you? Could it be bearing with coworkers' negativity or, or sometimes cutting sarcasm? Could it be... <laughs> Enduring a church friend who always comes across as though they're right. Bearing with one another is more than that, but it doesn't stop there. Long-suffering is also forgiving each other. Not the kind of forgiveness that's forced on us when we're kids, like, now say sorry, or now say I forgive you. Not that kind of forgiveness. We are talking about the real deal here, and we know that. Because Paul says, forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. And that is a tall order when you read through the letter of Colossians because it's remarkable the language, it's remarkable the language that Paul uses when he talks about the ways that God has forgiven us. Let's just look at a sample. Paul calls the Colossians to give thanks to God who qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people. Later, he says that once you were alienated from God and were enemies, but through Jesus, he has restored the relationship, making you free from accusation. He goes on to what may be one of the most evocative statements about forgiveness. He says that that he forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. He qualified the un qualifiable. He took enemies and he freed them from accusation. He canceled the charge. How remarkable is that? But also, when is the last time that you were deeply hurt? That you could, e- that you could say that I am eagerly, that I, I am eager to do something like that. Well, in the beginning, we, we, we talked about how one of the hardest things to recover from in the face of hostility, uh, abandonment, uh, and betrayal is this loss of personal agency. It, it evokes shame in us that magnifies the pain and it makes it stick. We can't quite shake the feeling of a, of a, of a spouse who has an affair, of a coworker who uses us for personal gain. We, we can't quite shake the feeling of a friend who stabbed us in the back. But what if 
long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, didn't have to simply be a reaction after the fact, after the wrong has occurred? What if it could be something we preemptively take to those relationships before the harm occurred? If at this point some of you are starting to feel a little bit anxious, I just want to say, I I get it. I get it. Uh, Maybe some of you are thinking of of some past trauma that has occurred in your life or um, maybe even some past abuse. And when you hear about talk about forgiveness or you hear about maybe even long-suffering, there's a part of you that's not only afraid but, but anxious and maybe even angry. I want to take just an important aside to address some of that because because there is something that all of these things are and there is something that all of these things aren't. And just to simplify our discussion, I'm going to focus in on forgiveness. First of all, forgiveness isn't saying a wrong committed is okay. Forgiveness isn't saying that a wrong committed is okay. Second, forgiveness isn't permission for the wrong to continue. It's not permission for the wrong to continue. Third, Jesus commands forgiveness, but forgiveness can and should never be forced. Forgiveness should never be forced. When forgiveness is forced, and the church has done this at times throughout history, we subsume the role of the Holy Spirit in somebody's life. And we, we don't do so with, with great effect. Forgiveness is something that is deep and it's personal. And often forgiveness is a, is a series of micro decisions that have to happen on a daily basis and sometimes for several days. Forgiveness, it could be complicated. Now, that doesn't mean that the church shouldn't speak into forgiveness Right, the, cur- the church must cast a vision for forgiveness, but it should also create space for people on their own journeys of forgiveness and give them room to stumble upon the way. Fourth, forgiveness doesn't mean that relationships go back to square one. In the instance of of infidelity Jesus did not force Jesus did not force the injured partner to stay fifth and lastly like the last forgiveness does not mean that we should unwisely be in company with people who could do us great harm look i get it sometimes sometimes people exaggerate harm in order to avoid being in relationships that are important. It's, it's a real problem. And, and if we never were around healthy people, but if we were never around healthy people, as, as, as Paul will say in another letter, we would ultimately just have to leave the world, though. So there's, there's a balance, and there's, there's, this requires wisdom, Scripture, but yet Scripture teaches the value of of good company. 
that encourages and points people toward grace and truth. Certainly there are things that forgiveness does not ask us to do. But there is also a vision that forgiveness casts for us for a better life. When we release people from their debts, we release ourselves from the debt, from the burden of holding their debts. I have an illustration. I've used it before. I like it. Um, I'll use it again today. Back when I was in college, they had these things. I don't know if they still have them, have them anymore. They're called books. <laughs> but back then in college, they were really big. And they were really heavy books. Um, this was, for context, this was the day, this was at the time when MySpace was cool. What's a MySpace, you ask? Exactly. Exactly. Well, sometimes you'd have to carry these books to class, and sometimes you would have multiple classes back to back. So you needed a backpack for this, right? You needed something sturdy. It was going to carry all of that weight, and you would haul all of your books to classes, and you would tell your professors that you read them. Oh, and man, your back hurt at the end of the day, especially if you had to go all the way over to West Campus. So oh, that was rough. There was nothing quite like the feeling at the end of the semester when finals were over of being able to unload this backpack at the campus bookstore and pawn off these books for a little bit of cash. Boy, the feeling. That was great. This is what forgiveness feels like. That last one was a hard one to forgive. But what if forgiveness was not only a reaction to something? But the truth is, we might unburden ourselves. But what happens over time is we eventually go on and we make new relationships. So we pick up new burdens. And sometimes we pick up new burdens from old relationships. And, you know, sometimes in addition to that... We go back and we pick up some of these old ones that we thought we left behind. So I have a question for you. What if we just dropped the bag? What if we just dropped the bag? Well, what's all this have to do with uh, with personal, was experiencing a loss of personal agency and, and shame, and the shame that is taken from us when, when we lose control. Everything. If 
we're in a relationship of any kind that is important to us, then there is always risk of hostility, abandonment, or, or betrayal. Relationships of any kind. Yes, it's wise to minimize uh, those uh, risks, especially in the most personal relationships that we have. But in the end, relationships, they just hurt, don't they? Relationships, they just hurt, and, and they will hurt, especially the closer that we are, because we live in a broken world, and we just so happen to be broken people. We just so happen to be broken ourselves. Yet, if we make, if we make a decision to accept some of the world's pain in advance... We are not only going to be better equipped to deal with the hurt when it comes, we will find ways to flourish no matter what comes our way. That's because if we willingly accept pain as part of the beautiful life that Jesus has invited us to experience on earth, pain will not be able to take us from that beautiful life. The choice to long suffer will be ours as we put on this powerful virtue from the life of Jesus. We can still be life-giving and relationally healthy when people wrong us by choosing to suffer with them ahead of time. By choosing to suffer with them ahead of time. It was a life-changing moment for Chuck but it wasn't the end of his story. Chuck was in a coma for six weeks. And, and during that time, during the time that his family didn't know whether he would survive, uh, they went through all of the emotions. They went through rage, fear, even vengeance. But they knew that knowing Chuck as he was, that if he woke up, he would skip those stages and he would move right to forgiveness. Well, the assailant, his name was Michael, and he, he went into hiding after the hit, and um, he almost drunk himself to death. It turns out that Chuck, Chuck's family wasn't the only family that was experiencing pain in this story. Michael had a family, too. And because of all of the press coverage that occurred during this time, uh, the family was basically shunned. He had a seven-year-old boy, Michael Jr., who who started failing his classes in the third grade and started acting out because of everything that was happening. A three-year-old daughter who um, was diagnosed with a serious disease during this time. And night after night, these kids were crying for their dads. They were crying for their dad. I wish I knew the details on this part of the story, but something moved Chuck and his wife, Auburn, to reach out to that family and be a part of their lives, and to help. And when Chuck tried to explain it, he, he thought of this metaphor. It was like we had just gone through an earthquake, and we were the first ones to stand. So we just tried to help other people who had been affected by the, by the earthquake. Well, Michael was eventually caught, and he was put on trial, and Chuck was there. And Chuck describes the moment, the one moment during the trial that their eyes met, and he, he describes it, is a moment of compassion, a moment of compassion between the two of them. And at that moment, he became an advocate for the defense 
arguing for uh, for for special training to occur and for uh, the, the ability to work and and be uh, go to school and for a shorter sentence so that he could eventually come home to his family. He became an advocate for Michael during that experience. Chuck brought up a quote from uh, author Harold Kushner that I thought was appropriate. Forgiveness is first and foremost a way of seeing. Cannot, it cannot change the facts about the world we live in, but it can change the way that we see those facts. It can change the way that we see those facts. Perhaps a story like this opens up some old wounds. Maybe it takes you down a road, a memory road that you haven't been in a long time and you don't want to go. But maybe it can also open up the opportunity for us to be more life-giving in some of these difficult circumstances. And if you're ready to take that step, I've just thought of three practical ways that we can put this into action. First, accept God's forgiveness and healing. Accept God's forgiveness and healing. A book that's been meaningful to me, I've brought it up on occasion, is Henri Nouwen's The Wounded Healer. And he, he claims in the book that the people who are most capable of healing other people are those that are most aware of their own wounds and who take the most care to tend to them. At the beginning of, uh, at the, beginning of the letter to Colossians, uh, Paul says something really beautiful about the, the Colossian church, and he says something that stood off the page to me. He says, you came to truly understand God's grace. Truly understand God's grace. They came to understand the real deal. It wasn't a surface-level understanding of grace. They fully understood where they came from, and they, they were amazed at the beauty and the wonder of God's grand rescue plan to save them. Number two, and this is especially applicable for those of you who are struggling to forgive or where trust has been broken. Let me encourage you just to read some stories on forgiveness. Read some stories on forgiveness. In 2004, journalist Marina Cantacuzino founded a, a special project for that very thing called the Forgiveness Project. You can go there at forgivenessproject.com. That's where stories like, like Chuck's come from. It, it, was a, it was an attempt to bring healing and restoration to those people who have experienced trauma and injury in their lives. And something really stood out to me as I was looking through some of the stories in the story section. When I started to scroll down and through these photos that, that marked stories, I kept scrolling, I kept scrolling, I kept scrolling. And I'm like, whoa, where does this end? How am I going to find a good illustration? Where am I even going to start? <laughs> so I decided to count 161 stories have been accumulated on this website over the years. 161 stories have been gathered there. That's amazing. And what that tells me, if there's that many people who have overcome trauma and overcome personal injury, then we can, we can do that too. We can do that too. Lastly, as you pray, put on the virtue of long-suffering. 
put on the virtue of long-suffering. Now, maybe you don't really consider yourself to be all that of a spiritual person, or maybe prayer is hard for you. Just keep it simple. You could simply ask God on your way to work or on your way to school to help me become more of a long sufferer. You could do it in the shower. Keep it as, as simple as that. There's a psychological element to this. When we set our expectations to be healers instead of reactionaries, um, when people harm us, uh, that's going to help protect us when those difficulties come. But Paul takes us a step further than that because it's not just about a psychological expectation. It's about experiencing the power of Jesus through prayer, real power that could empower us to bring Jesus' wholeness into broken places. That's what prayer can do for me, and that's what prayer can do for you. We can still be life-giving and relationally healthy when people wrong us by choosing to suffer long with them. There are so many things in this world that we cannot control. And when our illusion of control, when it breaks, that can feel really overwhelming. But by the grace of God and by the power of Jesus, we get to choose what kind of people we will be. And that means that we get a say in what kind of life we're going to have. Let's pray. Father, we confess that forgiveness is hard. Forgiveness is hard for us all. But you have forgiven us. And not only that, you have stepped into this world. And through your Holy Spirit, you have given us the power to forgive. So I pray for those people who are struggling and who have been injured, that you would walk alongside them as a fellow sufferer to be present in their pain, to be a part of their journey, and to cast a vision for something better. And I pray that you would enable us to be forgiving people, to be the kind of people that reflect you and show you to the world. In Jesus' name, amen.